If you would, remain standing for the reading of God's Word and turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. I'll be reading verses 1 through 11. As I said last week, Romans 5, these words that are said right here, Paul is saying them with great excitement. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering. When the suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Praise God for his word. Please be seated. So peace with God is only possible through our Lord Jesus Christ. These words, these words among people who claim to be God's children should not be debatable. Peace with God is only possible through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to the words found in Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 17. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh, dividing wall of hostility, By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. So our gracious God gives the gift of faith. And that faith lays hold of Jesus Christ and justifies the sinner. That means the sinner is made in right standing with God because of Christ. Jesus is our peace. Jesus puts us in right standing with God. 
So God is no longer at war with those who are in Jesus. This is what we mean by peace. God has granted us peace because he is no longer at war with us. This is great security for the believer. But peace with God is not all that the believer has. The believer also has access to God. Look at Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So we have peace and we have access. We have peace with God through Jesus, and through Jesus we all also have access to God. So we enter through the gate of Jesus, and being in him, we have access or we have fellowship with God. So it's not just that God has stamped his children with peace. We have been stamped with peace, but we also have continual access, a continual relationship to the one God of everything. We enter through the gate of Jesus, and being in him, we have access or fellowship with him. This communion with God is the ongoing grace of our justification. This communion with God, where we have relationship with God, conversations with God, a intimate relationship with God, it is ongoing grace of our justification. The grace that saved us is also the grace in which we now stand. Peace with God is a one-time event in history in our life in which we do not stop enjoying. You may be saying, well, wait a minute. There are times in my life when I don't enjoy my relationship with the Lord. I'm not talking about on your end. I'm talking about You not only have peace with God, you have continual communion with the Lord, and the Lord's going to see to it that He keeps you, that He holds you, and that nothing is going to take you out of His hands, and He's going to continue to encourage you and to spur you on and to grab hold of you tightly to where nothing can let you go, not even your doubts. Not even the things that you wish were happening, that are not presently happening. But our God is good, and He is good all the time. The grace that saved us is also the grace in which we stand. And we're standing not because it's our own strength, because that strength has been given to us by the Lord. Peace with God. God grants peace. We are no longer at war with him, and he is no longer at war with us. God has adopted us, and by adopting us, you you don't get the picture of a father walking into a room and the father picking out the best child in which to say, "I, I want that child. It's a father walking into a room, and he's looking out over all of creation, And when he adopts a man or a woman or a youth or a child, that child is not deserving of adoption. It's not deserving of adoption. It's an undeserved sinner. 
We have a relationship with God. We have continual access to God as we can never leave the foundation of grace in Jesus. You see, before the fall, Adam and Eve, they had continual access with God. I love when I get to spend time in Genesis and you read over and over what's going on. Like even after the fall happened, you learn so much about Adam and Eve and their relationship with God. Sin entered the world. What did Adam and Eve do? They realized, we're naked. Let's hide. Let's hide from the Lord as if God doesn't know where you are. And then the scripture tells us, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. That is how close Adam and Eve were to the Lord. They knew his sound. They could distinguish the sound of God versus the sound of the animals. The sound of the wind and the trees and everything in the garden, everything that they heard, all the beautiful noises, and they heard the Lord, and they knew that was him walking. We have peace with God, and we have access with God. But before the fall, Adam and Eve had continual access. After the fall, sin changed everything. All was corrupt. And God gave a promise, and faith was required, or access was denied. Moses met with God. Moses had access on that mountain, and he instructed the people of God. Where God dwelt in the temple, the priest, the priest could only enter the Holy of Holies once a year. He could only enter once a year. And tradition has it, we don't find this from Scripture, but they tied a rope around him. And he went into the Holy of Holies once a year just to make sure that if he died, they could pull him out. But once a year, he would enter. Hebrews 9 better explains this. Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 7. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which where the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar and the incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So access to God was limited after the fall. As sin changed everything, Jesus Christ has also changed everything. For those in Christ, we have access. Hebrews 10 continues this. Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. So how do we enter? Is it through our works? No. Is it through our hope and that we will be good enough when we stand before the Lord? No, you enter through the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is through 
his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. So it's not something that we say, yes, I entered through the blood of Jesus, and that is past tense. We hold on to that confession dearly as we age. And we don't ever let that confession go from our hearts, from our minds, from our life. We cling to it with all that we are. In fact, we talk about this confession. We share this confession. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So in Christ, we have access to the grace of God continually. Here in Romans 5, Paul is continuing to build God's great security of his children. It's God's great security of his children being built brick after brick after brick. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So we have peace with God. We have access to God. And number three, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What does that mean? In other words, God will Bring us home. In this life, in your life, we are bombarded with everything going on in this world and it seems like it's all corrupt. We are hearing so much about everything We are seeing so much destruction, so so much sin on display for all to see. So many people applauding that sin. Even this month, you can't go anywhere without seeing the celebration of what mankind has said we are to be and we can be outside of the thinking and the knowledge that God exists. We need to remember as God's people that we not only have peace with God, we not only have access to God, but God is going to bring us home. Do you know what that means? There's nothing happening right now that is outside of the sovereign providential ruling of the Lord. There's nothing happening in your life right now in which surprises God. As his children, we are to trust him and we are to live for him. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So the peace of God and our access to God will never be removed, for he will bring us home. We will forever be with him. So we have forever peace, we have forever access, and we have forever certainty. So God justifies us in his Son. The Spirit of God continues to sanctify us, and His Spirit will cause us to reach our sure glorification. So we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. 
The reason that many of us as Christians fail to rejoice in hope of the glory of God is we fail to hold on to the promises of God because we allow the things of this world to be held on by our minds and our hearts and our lives more than we hold on to what God has said. So are you rejoicing in what God has done? Are you rejoicing in what God will do? So God justifies those in his Son. His Spirit continues to sanctify them, and his Spirit will cause them to reach their sure glorification. These three truths lead us to Romans 5, verse 3. He says, more than that, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So not only peace and access and certain eternal glorification, but all that happens in our life, we are to rejoice in. All that happens, all that is approved by God, all that happens is approved by God. This is the God of the Bible. If we think that something happens on this earth outside of God's approval, that means God is not all-powerful and God is not all-knowing and God is not holy, but He is. God is seeing to and ruling over everything. Anytime I forget this in my life, I am reminded time and time again of Job. When Job starts talking before the Lord, and then the Lord puts Job in his place, how I need that from time to time. Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Casey, where were you when I predestined your salvation before you were even born? Do you think the God who saved you is not the God who's going to keep you and hold you? That I'm not going to orchestrate every little thing in your life for your good and my glory? All that happens is approved by God. Our sufferings, our trials, our troubles, our pressures, they are all part of God's plan. God is not in heaven watching and wondering, I wonder what's going to happen today. God has his hand on everything and is orchestrating all that comes to pass. I've been reminded with my daughter being in band how important the instructor is. I was in band, I was a nerd. I loved it. I loved playing. The band director would get up there He would direct after we had practiced and everything else. This is what's so beautiful. This is the Lord. When the Lord moves, wants to do what he wants to do, it gets done. It's what he does. That's the God of the Bible. As God's child, we can rejoice and we can exalt and we can glory in all that God is doing. To not praise God for what he is doing is to doubt God and his plan. To not praise God for what he is doing is to doubt God and to doubt his plan. These verses inform us that we who are in Christ, we need to know something. We need to know that suffering produces endurance. 
Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So let's walk through this. What do we need to know? Number one, suffering produces endurance. We can suffer in this life because of sin. This is where, if you've been following the Lord for a while, internally you can say, uh, yeah, that, that would be me. I've suffered in this life because of sin. Now, we can suffer in this life because God is correcting us or pruning us. We have been pruned. We understand pruning hurts. It's meant to. We can suffer just for the glory of God. This is a huge one. We can suffer for obeying and doing what is right. In a fallen world, our Savior experienced this. We can suffer because it is part of God's good plan for our sanctification. Many times, that is what the Lord is doing and always doing. No matter what category you want to place it in, whatever happens in this life, it is for your good, it's for your sanctification, and it's leading to a glorification because the Holy Spirit is in you. God's love has been poured into your hearts, and that's what God is doing. Our suffering in this life, it produces endurance. Another word is, it produces steadfastness. It produces perseverance. It is the ability to remain a focus on the eternal until our race is over. Yes, that's what God is doing in our suffering. It allows us to keep going and going and going, looking until our race is over, but looking to Jesus. Our suffering as his children, it is temporary. It is but a moment when we look and are reminded of what is to come. Nothing that happens is worthless. In fact, as his children, we are to hold tightly onto Romans 8, verse 28. And we know for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. It's a verse that we like to quote. It's not a verse that we like to say that we live out. That we actually believe that all things work together for good. Suffering produces endurance. Number two, endurance produces character. Endurance produces character. Character or proof. It's a tried worth. It's being approved through testing. It's proven spiritual character. It's character that praises the Lord. Our troubles that are God-ordained are conforming us more into the image of Jesus. So suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Number three, character produces hope. Character produces hope. So we see what God is doing, and we are excited about it. You may be thinking, well, what if I'm not excited about it? Like, what if this is a hard and difficult trial? That's where you hold on to the promises. Like, you think of generation after generation of men and women who were, had chains wrapped around them and thrown into the water and drowned because of their profession of faith in Christ. You think about the men, women, and children that were tied up 
in the middle of town to a wooden post, burned to death in front of everybody with screams heard from block to block. Why? Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Those individuals, the reason they could do that, the reason that they could hope in what the Lord was doing is because they'd know that they were being made more like Christ. And whatever that entails, even if that means going home, God was at work. Character produces hope. The fact that God is making us more fixated on who Christ is and what He is doing. Yes, we can play the fool and leave the Word, and we can play the fool and we can embrace the foolishness of the world and ignore the wisdom of God which is crying out in the streets. We can play the fool. But as a Christian, suffering is to be viewed as part of the process of sanctification. What do you mean by process? Your suffering will one day be done with. It's just a part of the process. It is not going to be at the end. At the end, we are with Christ with no more suffering. Suffering is part of our maturity. It produces endurance, godly character, and it increases our hope in the Lord. Those who go through trial and trial and trial again of constant suffering, you are starting to realize that you had one line over here and 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 you had one line connected to God. But through all your trials and all your heartaches, all your suffering, each of those lines are being pulled back and you have more lines going to God because you're trusting Him all the more. Endurance, character, and hope is increased. And number four... Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So not, we look at peace and we have access and we have fellowship. God, the Holy Spirit, has been given to you. So the same Holy Spirit that's in you if you've been born again is the same Holy Spirit that's in me. Hope completes the cycle. The hope that we have is not wishful thinking. We use this word all the time to talk about something else. I really hope that my children do what I've asked them to do. I really hope that package comes. I really hope that we make it safely home. But when we talk about hope here, this hope is not wishful thinking. Our hope is God-given, which means it's going to Be done. It is a sure and steady anger. We sing about this. Our hope is the assurance of something not yet fully experienced. As a Christian, we've already experienced the hope of God and we will continue to experience it, but we haven't experienced it fully yet because we're not home. It is a hope that has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that is in us. That God has given us so much and He hasn't given us what we rightfully deserve. God has given us so much and He hasn't given us hell. Hell is what we deserve. We who have been called to Christ, we have everything 
in Christ. In your suffering, remember what God is doing. Endurance, character, and hope. He is continuing to build up all of that as He is conforming us more into the image of Christ. Look at verse 6. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. I find it extremely interesting and also a high point. When you walk through Romans, like you're talking about, we're in Romans 5 right now, over and over and over again. What is Paul doing as he's breaking down all this theology and explaining all this to us? Look at what he's doing. He never leaves the gospel. And he keeps bringing it up again and again and again. Like he just explained all this. And then he gets to verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us, and while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. So Paul never leaves the gospel. He keeps bringing it up. And these verses, they teach us so much here. Number one, Christ died for the weak and the ungodly. Christ died for the weak and the ungodly. The weak and the ungodly are the powerless and the wicked who are not like God at all. It's the powerless and the wicked. No one is good. He died for the weak and the ungodly. No one is healthy. He died for the weak and ungodly. No one seeks for God, for they cannot seek the all-powerful God since they are spiritually dead and they are powerless. This is where you have the picture so many people paint the picture that the, the person is swimming in the ocean and he's calling out and he's reaching out. That's the wrong picture. The person is in the ocean. He's at the bottom of the ocean and he's dead. That's the picture. You have no power. You're spiritually dead. You are weak. You can do nothing. So the weak and the ungodly are the powerless and the wicked who are not like God at all. The death of Christ was needed for the salvation of your soul. The cost of salvation was the death of Jesus. That is how powerless we are. The cost of salvation was the death of Jesus, the Son of God. Number two, Christ died at the right time in history. Christ died at the right time in history. God's plan is perfect, and His perfect plan always happens. Christ was God's plan from eternity past. So Christ coming and dying on the cross was not a course correction because mankind sinned. I don't know if you ever thought about this. It's not that God was in heaven Oh, Adam and Eve messed up. We've got to do something here. Jesus' coming was always part of the plan of God. Christ died at the right time in history. Dying on a cross for the sins of mankind. The cross is always a plan. Christ came at the perfect time. Christ died at the perfect time for His children. 
Those before Christ, they held on to the promise of a Savior. Those after Christ, we look back and we're holding on to the finished work of Christ the Savior. Christ died for the weak and the ungodly, and Christ died at the right time in history. Number three, Christ died for his children while they were still sinners. So you have the person at the bottom of the ocean, spiritually dead, unable to do anything. A spiritually dead person does not please God. A spiritually dead person does not reach out for God. That person is spiritually dead. The Lord did it all. Christ died for his children while they were still sinners. Sinners. Disobedient, filthy, rejecters of God, and haters of all that is good. Christ died for his children while they were still enemies. Look at verse 8. Verse 8 is a specific focus on the elect, the church. Meaning, it's a special love that God has for his bride. But God shows his love for us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The word for us refers to the church. This love that God has for his children, his church, is a perfect love that fully covers our sin. That Christ died for his sheep. Christ did not die for all. Otherwise, all would be saved. The Bible does not teach universalism anywhere. The Bible teaches that God draws, that no one comes to Christ outside the work of God upon a life. The atonement with Christ was not for all. The atonement was limited to those whom God calls. This is what is known as the definite or limited atonement of God through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That Jesus died only for the elect. And... The Bible also commands and acts that everyone everywhere is commanded to repent and believe, to not delay, to not harden your heart, to go to Christ and to find life. If you're sitting in the pew and you're saying, I don't like this doctrine because that means you're saying that I cannot feel the weight of sin and I can't call out on Christ for salvation, you're not understanding the doctrine. What that is saying is, if you are convicted over your sins, you are called to call on Christ for salvation. It's saying that Jesus on the cross did not die on the cross for the possibility of people to be saved or the hope that people might come to him for salvation. It's a God in all of history, he has a point in doing everything that he does and he died for his church. The Bible commands that we repent and we believe, that we come to him for salvation God teaches that salvation comes through the word of Christ. Romans 10, verse 17. Salvation does not come any other way. Christ died for the weak. Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died at the right time in history. And Christ died for his children while they were still sinners. Number four. Christ died to justify and save his children from the wrath of himself. Christ died to justify and save his children from the wrath of himself. Christ alone justifies, and without his justification, you will receive God's wrath. 
God's wrath is what we all rightly deserve. God saves sinners not from you. God saves sinners from Himself. We need to see this in the Scriptures and bring it into our mind and life. Most of us, we might have this in our theological bank, in our theological journal, but we haven't applied it to life yet. God saves sinners from Himself. We need to be saved from God, and the only way we can be saved from God is by God. God saves us from Himself by the giving of Himself. The answer to our problem is our Creator. That Christ died to justify and save His children from the wrath of God. And number five, Christ died to reconcile His church. Christ died to change our relationship to Him. He paid for us. He adopted us, removing our heart of stone, giving us a heart of flesh. And Romans 5, verse 10, is absolutely mind-blowing. It says, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. This verse is telling us that we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, but much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. Words of John MacArthur explain this. If the dying Savior reconciled us to God, surely the living Savior can and will keep us reconciled. Meaning our Savior is alive. Salvation is a work of God by His power. Christ died to make us born again, not to fix us up. We don't come to Christ because we need a little Jesus in our life. We come to Christ because we need a new life. A cleaned up life does not change your relationship with God. Only a life that has been born again by the power of God presents you spotless before the Lord. Christ died to justify and save His children from the wrath of God. Christ died to reconcile His church. This brings the dead person at the bottom of the ocean spiritually into a relationship with Him. Number six, Christ died so His children will rejoice that He has reconciled them. God's children are thankful for what He has done and they worship Him. That's not pragmatism. That's not legalism. God's children love Him and they obey His commands. Which means God's children, because of what God has produced in them, done in them, they will worship Him. They will long to please Him because they understand where they were, dead at the bottom of the ocean, and now they are spiritually alive in Christ in which they have been given everything. That God took away all the garbage that they had in their life and God has given them Himself. God's children are thankful for what He has done. God's children are joyful for what He has done. If this is not you, perhaps you're struggling right now and you need help, that's why you have a church family. Or perhaps you cannot look at your time where you've seen or you had a season of just being joyful and thankful for what the Lord has done. Perhaps you're not saved.
Talk with someone if you have doubts. But Christ died for the weak and the ungodly. Christ died at the right time in history. Christ died for his children while they were still sinners. Christ died to justify and save his children from the wrath of God. Christ died to reconcile his church. Christ died so his children would rejoice that he has reconciled them. So as Christians, we have peace with God, but we have so much more. We have access to God. We have daily communion with God. God sanctifies us. God redeems all things in our life for our good. And God will bring us home. Before we close, I want to look at Romans 5, verse 7. Just to drive the stake down a little bit deeper for you. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. In other words, it would be difficult to find a person who would be willing to die for a morally upright man. Maybe you could find someone to die for a good or joyful man. But look at what Christ has done for you. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for the weak and the ungodly. Jesus died for the wicked, undeserving enemy. Jesus died for sinners. And his death brought not only peace, but access to God and communion with God. His death brought continual sanctification until we reach the final stage of ultimate glorification where our faith will become sight. God's redeeming love is truly amazing. It's truly amazing. When you talk about a man would not even consider dying for a moral man. And maybe perhaps you can find a man or a woman to die for someone who has good standards and and he's joyful. But how can we fathom that a holy, holy, holy God would send His only Son to this earth to die for wretched sinners, to die for enemies of him, to die for people that even after he saves, they will continue to rebel. God's love is truly amazing. Christ is everything. And if you're not saved, you need Christ. Christ removes the wrath of God. Christ gives salvation. Christ keeps you and sanctifies you. Christ causes you to rejoice. And Christ will bring you safely to Him. You need peace with God. But you also need every other good and perfect thing that is found in Him. Father, I thank You for Your Holy Word. Father, if anything, your word has 
reveal to us today your great love for wicked sinners. The fact that we could, we could spend the next 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 years and we will still not fully understand the tip, just the iceberg of your amazing love for us. Father, I pray, Lord, that we who are yours, who have been born again, we would truly find rest in who you are this week as we abide in your word. Lord, I pray that we will become overwhelmed with your goodness and your kindness. That you would give us a greater understanding of your love. Father, for the person who has been disobedient for a while and who is struggling, Father, I pray they would come to you and they would find rest in you this week. That you would let them know, Lord, that it is not their grip that is holding on to you, it is your grip that is holding on to them. And Father, for the one that is uncertain of their salvation or who is lost, Father, would you draw them to yourself? May they do as your word has commanded to repent and believe upon Christ. For Christ is our only hope. He is our only peace. He is the only thing that will last and bring us into a right relationship with you. Help us to remember this and help us to proclaim this with great joy and to have a great reverence for you and a great worship for you in this life. For we live and we die and we face judgment and we stand before you. May we not forget that you are seeing everything that we are doing now. May we live for your name. That is our chief end to glorify you and to enjoy you now. It's in Christ's wonderful name that we pray these things. Amen.